Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, pro physique athlete, back with another podcast episode with Dr. Eric Helms on Swole Radio. We have this groundbreaking evidence-based man here with us on the show today. We're going to be talking about the big three for hypertrophy, the squat, bench, and deadlift. I think this is going to be a great episode that Eric is uniquely qualified to talk about since he is both a natural bodybuilder and accomplished powerlifter. So he's going to be very well suited to this topic. And I think it'll apply to a lot of people since these lifts are so popular and there are a lot of, I feel, misconceptions about how people use them and how people get married to these movements. So we're going to be talking about how useful they are from a biomechanical standpoint for hypertrophy, talk about some technique tips that Eric might be able to share with us, as well as maybe touching on some assistance exercises that Eric likes that are also hypertrophy friendly. So thanks for being on the show, Eric. Always a pleasure. And uh, calling me an accomplished powerlifter, if you just tack on maybe the word like coach after that, I'd say is accurate. I, I powerlift. And it's probably the most kudos I'd give myself. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. So, okay, we're going to be starting off with bench press. I think this is going to be a fun one. It's a favorite of mine, unfortunately so, since I've kind of ran myself into the ground in my early days benching so much. But starting off, Eric, how good is the bench press for hypertrophy? I actually think just kind of like the baseline, typical way that people perform bench and the characteristics of bench generally, it's a pretty good movement. Um, like all barbell movements, it has the potential issue, depending on someone's individual biomechanics, that if they're not necessarily super symmetrical left or right, one arm's longer than the other, uh, they have a, a prior injury, you know, let's say they got one drop shoulder or if they don't have as much elbow extension on one side or something like that, it can be an issue, but it has a number of features which I think would make it a pretty useful tool. So for one, the tension is highest at the bottom. So just like the squat, which we'll talk about, um, it's a, you know, it, it puts a high, high degree of tension, which we think is important at a long muscle length when you're using a full range of motion. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, you're creating uniquely uh, force in, in multiple planes. It's a, uh, and that may not make sense for people who are thinking like multi-planar movement. Um, but because you're actually holding a bar, um, the summation of forces is such that you're kind of extending outward. And the, the bar or the, the resultant reactive forces are pushing against you the other way. Um, if you think about a like a dumbbell press, you can't really exert a super strong you know, elbow extension moment at the bottom mm -hmm. where you just kick the, the dumbbells out to the side. So while I don't have good applied data, which I, admittedly I think is the best form of evidence to say, hey, it's a better tricep builder than dumbbell work. Um, there's only towards the top portion of the lift where your triceps really can exert the maximum amount of uh, force that they could in, in, a, in a dumbbell movement. Um, and that is also when they're getting shorter. So um, you can get a fair amount of tricep uh, out of the full range of motion of a bench because you can't rip the barbell in half. If you can, A, awesome, uh, you, you, you're clearly gotten strong enough to bench a lot of weight uh, that, that you can no longer bench because you're destroying bench presses. But uh, but yeah, so essentially trains you to long muscle length with a full range of motion, allows you to put your full amount of triceps into it. Um, and then for anyone who's like maybe skeptical of that, if you think about it this way, almost everyone that I know can bench more than they can simply adding two dumbbells together. And it's a substantial amount more, you know? So uh, you're, you're able to get more summation of forces to lift more. So it means you're producing more force, which means higher, you know, use of all the muscles involved for a longer range of motion and 
you know, aspect of the lift. So I think the bench is pretty damn good. Um, that statement is a little different than saying a powerlifting style bench press is is as good as bench press, though, which mm. I think is probably an important caveat that we're going to tap into multiple points in this podcast. Yeah. So what are the modifications that a powerlifter would make and how does this affect your stimulus? Yeah, exactly. So a powerlifter is, of course, um, interested in having bigger muscles. Um, because when we look at all cross-sectional data, and there's a fair amount of it on strength athletes, we see that the strongest predictor out of all the cross-sectional predictors is how big are your muscles. And that's been expressed mm. in terms of uh, local muscle thickness in certain sites, total lean body mass, as well as cross-sectional area or physiological cross-sectional cross -sectional area, the relevant muscles. And we're talking about strong associations, typically 0.7 or higher, more often 0.8, 0.9, when you look at especially high-level powerlifters and what discriminates performance. So bigger muscles seem to be stronger muscles uh, when we analyze them cross-sectionally. The relationship's a little more complex when it comes to getting bigger over time and how that relates to getting stronger, because there's a lot more moving parts and they occur at different speeds. But um, I think it's fair to say it's at least uh, a good idea to try to get bigger as a powerlifter. Um, so uh it's not a complete dismissal of of the utility of these exercises for hypertrophy but because they are the competition lifts for power lifters you care m most about uh what can i do to maximize the amount i can lift right now uh today so that means that reducing the range of motion uh without too negatively impacting the amount of force you can produce whatever results in the highest load on the bar that meets the specifications of the lift that's a good decision. Mm. And people who are not aware, the IPF recently, that's the International Powerlifting Federation, it's probably the biggest and most organized, quote unquote, legit powerlifting federation, recently instituted a rule where they added a depth requirement on bench press. Mm. Um, and this is because of, like, I'll be straight up with you. It's because of Instagram comments from people who don't powerlift complaining about uh, lightweight lifters who are really good at arching and then do max legal width and only have like a one or two inch range of motion and feeling like it's bullshit. Um, mm. And that's because they get salty because, you know, in the gym, <laughs> this person who weighs 30 kilos less than them is mm. quote unquote benching more than me, but they're cheating. Uh, and it's, I, I think it's funny that someone who doesn't even compete in lifting would claim cheating on someone who does compete in lifting and they're lifting to the specifications put out by a national sporting organization. But I digress. I, I will say, <laughs> That the Fosbury flop, for those who don't know, is a method of high jump where you jump over backwards that everyone does now. And it is way easier to get over bars than it is to just simply vault over that shit and like do it like a hurdle like they used to do back in the day. And once Fosbury, the name of the guy who did it, uh, I'm sure there were similar reactions in the pre-social media era. But then everyone was like, actually, this is pretty good. We should do this. This is a, a, an advancement in technique. But anyway. Um, you can fight us in the comments. Yeah. Anyone I, listening? I, yeah. I mean, and the, I, I get it. Like in, in some cases you have people who have such a, who are so flexible and the arch is so high that they almost literally start on their chest. But those are some really, really edge cases. So anyway, this new rule to, to make sure that there is actually an embodiment of strength rather than just flexibility um, with some range of motion, if that's the ostensible argument, which I'm happy to accept, is that you need to at least get your elbows in line with the middle of your shoulder at the bottom. 
So that means that you can't arch too much or you can't go too wide. So you have to modify your form a little bit so that you're reaching sufficient depth. So anyway, the reason why that rule is relevant to this discussion about hypertrophy is it goes to show that as you manipulate range of motion, you're manipulating you know, the position you're in at the bottom. And if you're really able to arch and you don't have to go down very far, now you've changed that beneficial aspect of the bench press, which I mentioned earlier, training you at a longer mu uh, muscle length at the bottom, such that maybe you're not at that long of a muscle length, depending upon how much you can arch and depending upon your grip width and your individual biomechanics. So you are trading potential long-term hypertrophy for a short-term increase in how much you can lift to the specifications of the load. Um, yeah, so that is um, something that is to be considered by powerlifters. And that's why you will often see even powerlifters who are savvy use variations on bench press, such as a medium grip uh, or feet up. Um, I will often have my 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 benchers who are really really good at arching and reducing range of motion do a feet up medium grip bench so it's just shoulder width apart because then it really increases the range of motion and that's something we'll do further away from competition and get volume with it as a tool to you know build bigger packs so that when they are then doing their competition bench hopefully they're able to uh you know be bigger and maximize the both aspects they both their muscle size and the competitive specifications which are allowed hmm. Yeah, and then in terms of grip width, what would you recommend for people interested in hypertrophy? Yeah, I think for hypertrophy, you just want to look at a uh, like an architectural, architecturally sound, um, you know, position. So uh, if you find that your um, and there's a relationship between like grip width and then what you do with your upper body, um, you definitely don't need to like try to like arch and pack and and depress and retract your scapula and all that stuff. And there's even debate on whether you should do that as a power lifter, but you do want to feel secure on the bench. And, uh, and I find it for most people that is, you know, a minor itty bitty arch, you know, kind of like the normal uh, lordotic curve you'll have in your lower back, feet planted, kind of pushing out to your sides, kind of like you're doing an angle leg extension with both feet. And uh, you're on your traps a little more than you are on your mid back when you're in the benching position. And then at the bottom of the bench press, when viewed from the back, you want to see your elbow beneath your wrist. And I think that's that's generally uh, what, where your grip width should be, or in like you know plus or minus one to two inches from there, whatever feels most comfortable. Um, necessarily, the the narrower your grip the more your elbows are going to be coming inward and kind of pointing down. And then the more so the barbell will touch lower on your chest. Mm -hmm. And so I think ultimately you just want to figure out which position feels best for you and your shoulders. That's typically, you know, where people get issues with bench press, if they are going to have pain or discomfort, um, being wider. I, I, I don't think there's really a major distinction between like wider being more chest and mm -hmm. narrower being more tricep. It, it does increase the range of motion if you go narrower. Um, it does require you to move through more degrees of shoulder flexion uh, and a little bit less horizontal abduction. Um, but I don't think there's probably any substantive difference in terms of the actual stimulation, unless you're going pretty extreme, like close grip or, or wide grip. So I think most bodybuilders should be in some kind of like medium grip range uh, that is tailored to that evaluation from the back of are my elbows underneath my wrists when viewed from the back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think 
having some kind of pointer for people to like look at their own body structure and figure mm -hmm. it out for themselves because there's not going to be necessarily uh you know like put your hands at the at the neurals and you know that's going to be it yep Another interesting aspect of um, a barbell bench press is that the segment lengths of your arm can also impact things. So what's going to dictate how wide your grip is, is going to be your humerus length, right? So your upper arm length, because that's where it's going to determine how far out to the side your elbows are when you view from the back. And then what's going to dictate uh, the range of motion, how far you have to go down, is going to be the lower segment of your arm. Because if you have a really long forearm, then the bar is further away from your elbow, which means it's further away from your chest. So you have to go deeper and deeper and deeper for the bar to touch your chest. Terrible. So I will, yeah, it's great for deadlifts though, right? So, <laughs> so if you are in a, in a, in a position where you have a long forearm and a short humerus, that's typically not great for, for bench press, right? You're going to have what looks like a close grip, long range of motion. Um, and that's not a big deal for hypertrophy. It's all good. Um, but you know, it, it just kind of, just to illustrate your point that people have different, you know, body geometries and, and biomechanics and limb lengths, and that can impact and flexibility, and that can impact what the bench looks like. Um, and there are potentially some cases where touching the bar to your chest might be too much range of motion if you are kind of on the extreme ends of some of those things. So going down to the point where you feel uh, still comfortable with your shoulders is is fine. I think there probably should be some natural tucking, but not tucking the way they used to teach, um, like keeping your elbows in close for like a quick bench uh, in like the mid 2000s. Um, really, you know, prominent powerlifters who are all single ply or multi ply would kind of coach everyone to bench like they were equipped. But there should be basically some flaring uh, where your elbows go out to the side. Like if you think about the natural bar path of a bench press, you touch a little lower on your chest and then you finish, you know, um, if viewed from the perspective of the lifter, the bar goes backwards towards your face a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and essentially you start a little tucked and then your elbows flare out as you lock out. So they, as, as the bar starts to go up and that's a normal thing. Don't try to stay tucked the whole time. Um, and that will be more or less exaggerated depending on how narrow your or, or wide your grip is. If you're gripping pretty wide, they're not going to be that flared at the start. And they're just kind of, I mean, sorry, that tucked at the start and they're kind of be flared the whole time. If you're quite narrow, then they'll stay more tucked for more of the time and then flare kind of just right at the end. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something about some controversy with what you should be doing with your shoulder blades. What would mm. you recommend? Yeah, I think um, you want to feel stable. I don't necessarily think you need to retract and depress your scapula, but I'm also haven't been convinced by any of the arguments that it's a problem to try to retract or depress your scapula. Mm. I think if you do have pain, uh, that might not be something that you want to do. Um, but if you don't feel necessarily stable, then maybe you should try them. Uh, I think ultimately if you have a mild arch and you're a little more on your traps, it kind of takes care of itself. Um, and, uh, it, it's worth playing with both. And, hmm. but I mean, I, I think no matter what, there is some degree of protraction occurring in a bench press. That's just the way our body coordinates movement. So you are inevitably going to be doing some protraction on the bench a little bit. And that's actually a technique some powerlifters use when they're like really fighting to lock out is they think of trying to like press their chest away from the bar and they will mm -hmm. actually unprotract or sorry, unretract a little bit to help them with that lockout and shift mm -hmm. the bar a little further. Um, relatively 
advanced technique that I don't necessarily recommend to people. But just to go show, like, it's not a safety issue to, to come out of retraction, in my opinion. Uh, the general argument for why you'd be retracted and depressed is because a bench press doesn't allow for the normal uh, scapular, scapular humoral rhythm, if you will. Um, uh, glenohumeral rhythm, I think, is the actual term. So basically, you know, your, your scapula are supposed to be protracting and, and, uh, and moving away from each other as you press through a bench press. And because you're laying on a, on a bench press and there's no space for your scapula to move naturally, it doesn't occur uh, like it would maybe a little more in some, like a push-up, actually a lot more in a push-up. Um, so then, and that, you know, you'll have some bio, or I, I shouldn't even call them biomechanists, some applied anatomy uh, voices in our field will say um, that's really bad if you don't allow your scapula to move normally, it's causing pain, it's causing injury, um, and, or, or it's even worse for performance. Um, and it's not like we have a you know, mountain of anecdotal or scientific data uh, to back that up. It's, it's more just anatomical speculation. Um, we don't have good data showing what the degree of uh, movement at those joints are when someone actually is benching and trying to or not to retract and depress. Um, so ultimately, I think it comes down to personal preference, comfort, pain, um, and performance. Yeah, I like that. I think, you know, with these things, you kind of have to find what grooves for you. And yes. there's going to be a lot of different mechanisms or variables, as we mentioned, with your limb lengths that will affect, you know, the, these kinds of things. And it's hard to be that much of a purist and say, you know, if you hold your shoulder blade in a certain position, you're doomed, you know. Yeah, where you're going to explode. Feel... <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in terms of assistance exercises, what are some assistance exercises that you personally like that, you know, can be helpful for strength, but also friendly for hypertrophy? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of, you know, anyone who uses a, a, a wider or more arched grip bench press of also doing a variation that is like basically a, a more quote unquote normal grip, grip width and a less arched position. Um, I'm also a big fan of, uh, you know, feet up bench, um, so that people can, it, cause sometimes it's like, once you've ingrained an arch, it's hard to not arch, but if you have your feet up, it limits how much you can. Mm. Um, and it also makes you, it's not an unstable position. I mean, a bunch of people did that in high school cause it looked cool, right? Like put my feet up on bench. <laughs> like why? I don't know. Cause the senior did it. Um, yeah. so, uh, like I think that can sometimes just contrast what it's like to have your feet down and driving and your, your you know, your be on your traps and show you what st stable feels like by way of showing you what a little unstable feels like. And that can get you to be more aware of the position you're trying to achieve uh, for as a powerlifter on bench uh, when you're in your setup. Um, so I like those. I do think for powerlifters specifically, um, it's important to do some one count or two count pauses to prepare for potentially long press calls. Um, and for the, those are the only ones that I would like generally recommend everyone. I think most other main lift variations should be used in a case by case basis when you're trying to address a specific, uh, motor learning deficit or, uh, or as a cue for a, for a phase of teaching rather than just as like, throw this in on Wednesdays, it'll, it'll make your bench blow up. You know, that's not really a thing in my opinion, um, outside of the examples I already gave, like you know, every, every powerlifter is going to get a press command that may or may not be very long. Um, and any powerlifter who's using a, a really wide grip has a potential argument for using a narrower one. 
For those who can't use a narrow, narrower one without issues or pain, I think a good option is uh, dumbbells or even weighted push-ups. Those are great pressing accessories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. Just a good um, breadth. And yeah, the feet up bench was an interesting one where you're kind of riding that line where I think at some point instability can be counterproductive for yep. hypertrophy, but I mean, it's not an unstable movement and it can give you that range of motion benefit. It's especially important for lifters who are get actually fatigued and beat up by the arch. And that, that may sound weird to people, but for people mm. who are really good at arching and driving, mm. there have been people who've torn hamstrings bench pressing, you know? Um, and there are some yeah. people, yes. Yeah. Like uh, when you look at people who are really, really good at arching, they sometimes get lightheaded and pass out because they're putting so much pressure on, I mean, it's their, their spinal cord is like twisting and shit. And then they have their, <laughs> their like chin in their neck and then they're holding a massive weight over their head. Yeah. Right. Um, so that can cause issues. And also some people, they get, uh, they, they cramp in their hamstrings and their lower back from being in such a, uh, you know, like a isometric static shortened position. Um, and that can sometimes make the deadlift harder. So you want to find the balance between training the skill, but not having it interfere with everything else you're trying to do. So it like for people who are really, really good bench specialists, sometimes the bench does need to be on its own day. Um, you know, like a common issue you'll run into with power lifters who have like flexible bodies and, and are strong is like their low bar squat position is really low. Their arms are pretty tucked and they get elbow pain if they bench after they squat, like, damn it, you know, um, mm. or what I already said, their bench press is, is, uh, you know, pretty fatiguing and, uh, and stressful overall. And then also for their hamstrings and lower back. And then I can't deadlift, damn it. So what you can do is variations of the bench press on the days when you're deadlifting and squatting, and then sometimes just bring the bench press out front before the other two lifts. Um, that's something I do a lot with people who get elbow pain from benching. And I do myself sometimes is I'll just bench squat deadlift instead of squat bench deadlift, mm -hmm. um, or even have its own day. If someone is really getting a lot out of their bench, like that's something that you don't want to leave on the table. Um, some bench specialists make make money on bench you know like other people are benching in their weight class like 160 and they're doing like 185 now all of a sudden mm. it's kind of like a a decent squat right yeah. <laughs> so in those cases you really need to respect what strength you can get out of them but then you also have to think all right in competition they're going to have to do all three so at some point i need to build that resilience and figure out what they can do on all three on the same day but that can be typically sorted in your last couple training blocks before you get closer to competition mm -hmm. yeah i like it the peering into the strength world moving yeah, sure. on to the squat so you know people talk about the squat as a king of leg exercises mm. what do you think yeah i, I mean it, it's 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 really not bad it comes down to it's a very similar conversation to the bench press in that if you make some assumptions about having no prior injuries and having certain limb lengths and uh body geometries and just joint structure uh like anatomical classifications, you know, like hips that allow a decent amount of hip flexion and external rotation, um, you know, decently flexible, uh, you know, good, good ankle mobility and not really, really long torso, femur or tibia, but all kind of mid ranges, then you've got a, an excellent exercise, right? Um, at the near the bottom or just out of the bottom of the squat, you've got both the glutes and the quads put on decent stretch and you've got high tension. So it has that similar kind of force profile to a bench press where, uh, where it is hardest muscles are elongated and that's probably going to produce some, some pretty good, uh, you know, hypertrophy. Um, 
not that this is an issue, but it is a misconception where I think some of the people in powerlifting, again, say 10 years ago, uh, especially in the multiply community where you do a wide stance and you'd sit back, 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 back. They, some, I've even seen articles where it's like hamstrings are the most important muscle group in a squat. And that is like very easily falsifiable when you look at all the research on squats. Maybe not if you're squatting in that extreme manner, um, but if you're doing a squat that most people would, um, you actually see that the hamstrings really don't grow very much at all. Um, mm -hmm. And what people might be feeling as their hamstrings being active is probably their adductor magnus, which when you're in deep hip flexion acts as a hip extensor. And it's actually arguably one of the strongest hip extensors. Um, so yeah, the, the muscles that are trained by the squat are essentially your glutes, your adductor magnus, and then the vasti muscle group, which is all the quads except the rectus femoris. Um, so I, I think it's a combination of those two things, the, the position and, and equipped, and then the feeling people are getting in their adductor and attributing it to their, their hamstrings from squats. Um, so when you think about it, and I know we've talked about it before on the podcast, so I won't belabor the point. When you have biarticular muscles that serve two functions, if one of the functions opposes one of the other actions that's occurring in that movement, that muscle is going to be relatively quiescent, and then it's not going to grow very effectively. So in the case of the rectus femoris and the hamstring, the former uh, performing hip flexion, the latter performing knee flexion, obviously hip flexion and knee flexion are going to oppose uh, hip extension and knee extension, which are the two main things you're doing during, during a squat. Uh, the characteristic of a squat is simultaneous hip and knee extension. So uh, it is the pure hip extensors and the pure knee extensors which are going to be effectively trained by it, uh, which again is the vast eye, the glutes, and the adductor magnus. And that's a lot of muscles in your lower limb, but it's not all of them. Mm -hmm. So um, it can be a great movement. Um, and the, the, the barbell is a very accessible movement. You know, it's something that you know, it's, it's easier to get in a home gym than it is like a hack squat, for example. Um, mm -hmm. And it's something that's, uh, you know, just like the bench press, if, if you don't have prior injury, if you're nice and symmetrical on both sides, if you've got the right hip structure, ankle flexibility, no prior knee injuries, then you're good to go. And that can absolutely be your primary uh, kind of, you know, quad glute exercise, if you will. Um, if that's not the case, though, then, you know, variations on or alternatives to in any other movement where you're doing simultaneous hip and knee extension, a quote unquote squat pattern, I think is a great way to go. Yeah. Um, I like what you said about how it can be a very, you know, efficient and effective movement, even for people just training at home. And that's what, one of the things I really like about kind of these big barbell movements is you don't need much equipment. Once you get your squat rack in, you can do it all in a relatively small amount of space and still get an awesome workout in. Mm -hmm. 100%. And I also like that you brought the anatomy where, you know, you can really look at this with a anatomical lens and figure out which muscles are working and which ones aren't. I remember my old high school gym teacher teaching us about, you know, working out and he's like, the squat is a great, you know, quadriceps and hamstring builder. And now I know that my entire education was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the IOFters are right next to it, and I, I really do think that that's kind of it comes like it's, it's not an unreasonable thing for someone who has taken a basics anatomy class, right? Because the you know the hip extensors, it's the, the glutes, and then they synergize with the hamstrings, you know. 
So it is, it is like, there's a multi-layered cake there before you realize like, oh, like, like you actually have to look at research. You can't just look at an anatomy book unless the anatomy references the research that suggests like, hey, we have EMG studies, very low activity in the rectus femoris and the hamstrings. Okay, we have studies on doing squats and we don't see a change in hypertrophy on the hamstrings or rectus femoris. Like, unless you see those things or they're referenced in the textbook, <laughs> why would you know, you know? So it's, okay. um, it's, it's a choice by the body. Like the body could, you know, activate the hamstrings. It would just take away from the knee extension moment, right? And it could activate the rectus femoris. It would just take it, take away from the hip extension moment. And it, but, but I, I think obviously it's probably a less efficient strategy or, or you, you'd think our bodies would, would choose the, the coordination strategy of, of activating them rather than leaving them relatively inactive. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on, you know, squatting high bar versus low bar versus mm. say a front squat and how that impacts hypertrophy? I don't think it impacts it very much. I, I think it, these are things that give you options and they create different, uh, different weak points and they may or may not fit with different, uh, range of motion capabilities of different joints, right? So a um, a front squat, for example, for most people, what's going to be the limiting factor, especially if they have a longer torso, is going to be the upper back strain. Um, mm -hmm. To a lesser degree, that's true of the high bar because it's higher on your spine, and then to an even lesser degree, that that's you know true of the low bar because if you put it low enough, you're getting it down onto like your like stronger thoracic you know, spinal extension muscles. Like if you think of your spine as one joint, which it is absolutely not, or one lever arm, which again, because it's not one joint, it's absolutely not. The further it gets down, then the, the smaller that lever arm, lever arm. But also the further it gets down, the way it changes your squat mechanics, you have to lean over more. So for some people, it can be a shorter or longer lever arm, depending upon how like strong their upper traps are and their mid back to their upper back is. Um, but ultimately an interesting thing is that when you look at strength levels, people go from being stronger to weaker, going low bar to high bar to front squat, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that is not necessarily indicative based upon the data we have of the actual muscular contribution. Mm. It probably has more to do with the, you know, biomechanics of it. Um, so just because you're producing more force on a force plate doesn't necessarily mean that you're experiencing more tension on all the muscles involved. So I don't think it really matters. Um, however, I think whichever movement you wanna do as a hypertrophy quote unquote movement, you wanna be comfortable in it and you wanna be able to do at least moderate reps with it. And I don't think the front squat's a great candidate for that. Um, you know, mm. if you're doing it right, you're gonna have the bar mm -hmm. touching your, your throat. Uh, it's gonna be sitting kind of across or just behind your clavicles. Um, you have to have a fair amount of wrist mobility, or you have to have some instability if you're doing the, uh, the crossover grip. Um, so it's cool because if you have the ankle mobility, like if you have a lot of dorsiflexion range, then you could stay really nice and upright. Um, and that can be helpful sometimes. So for example, I used to have FAI before I got surgery and I had really limited, uh, range of motion in my hips, but because I could stay so upright, the actual hip angle was not so severe. So I could squat to depth in a front squat, um, but I could not on a high bar or low bar squat. So all of my squats for a few years were front squats. And I just dealt with the other negative issues because it was the only way I could barbell squat to depth. Um, so I think that is, is gonna be very individually determined. You know, a lot of people go like, oh, 
I want to have more, uh, you know, I have want to have more range about the knee to get more stretch on the quads to mm -hmm. get more, you know, hypertrophy there. And that's a, a decent consideration. And probably if you put a gun to my head and said, okay, which one of these movements is going to create more quadriceps stimulus, it would come down to where do you get more range of motion about the knee. And it would probably go from front squat to low bar squat. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, they're all in a pretty, like, you can't do a squat to a decent depth and not have a fair amount of, uh, of lengthening of the quadriceps at the bottom. Yeah. So I think we're probably majoring in the minors there. Um, so what it really comes down to is what enables you to do a full range of motion squat with relatively, you know, pain-free or discomfort-free position. So when you see someone who's, let's say, doing a back squat, but they're squatting wide, they might just have poor ankle mobility. Because the more you widen your stance, the less it requires you to actually have uh, more dorsiflexion range. But you can still get deeper in the squat and therefore get a good stretch on, on the quadriceps. So you're good to go. Um, and, and likewise, if you see, some, see someone doing a as upright as possible front squat like I was, it's not necessarily because I'm trying to get as much range of motion about the knee, I might be doing it because I don't have the hip range of motion. So considering a wide low bar squat to depth and a narrow front squat to depth are both pretty good. If you look at the bottom position, you're getting a decent stretch on the quads. I don't think it makes a huge difference. And the far more important variable is what enables you to get a decent range of motion by modifying stance width and, stance width and bar position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. It's... You know, it's good to know that I think there's a lot of, again, kind of barbell purists or biomechanists who will, you know, make have lengthy arguments about how a low bar squat is useless for hypertrophy and and that. But it's it's good to know that you can kind of find one that works well for you. Yeah, I mean, th there there could be some subtle differences, you know, like the low bar squat probably puts the glutes in a more stretched position than the high bar squat. The high bar squat probably puts the quads in a more lengthened position than the low bar squat. But we're talking about some pretty small differences, in my opinion, if you're actually using a decent range of motion. So um, ultimately, I think what was going to end up trumping both of those is which one is more sustainable and comfortable and which one can you do more work with. Um, and the other differences are just not worth it because like, you, you can't use them. It's, it's a academic discussion, you know. Um, if you can't get into the position that's supposedly 0.1% better for this, then, then, then so what, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also what you said about, you know, if that you have to be able to use them and what you said about moderate rep ranges, especially when we're talking about hypertrophy, like what you mentioned with the front squat for, for myself, I've always, yeah, found that I hate doing, you know, higher rep front squats because, you know, your upper back gives out and it's just holding the position where, I remember finding myself just doing lots of, you know, very low rep sets of front squats, which is maybe fun, but mm -hmm. at some point it's going to be, if you want to accumulate some volume, you want to be able to do those, you know, moderate rep ranges. Yeah. If you want to do six triples instead of three sets of six, and that doesn't bother you, then go for it. Front squats are great, you know? So, but, um, but yeah, I find doing any more than three or four reps on a front squat is it massively inflates the RPE, you know? So, mm -hmm. yeah. And then what are your thoughts on stance, you know, in terms of if people mm -hmm. have the range of motion, does it affect which muscles get hypertrophy? To some degree, but um, I don't think largely. Um, and I think just to go back to my prior point, if the stance enables you to get to the depth, that's the depth itself is going to be a better predictor or, or I should say a larger player in getting the muscles in the length and position and that stance you need to facilitate that. Um, 
you know, what, what you're manipulating there with stance width is typically going to be the degree of ankle dorsiflexion. And we're not really trying to use the squat to train the calves, although it probably does. Mm. Um, it's an interesting aside. It's not super <laughs> well, but uh, there is some data to indicate like the soleus actually produces a pretty important moment uh, or at least an induced acceleration. Um, but anyway, uh, the the Damn. stance width is, is really comes down to what is important for um, being able to achieve the range of motion you need to be able to train the long muscle length. So that that is like a principal concern in my opinion. Um, I don't think you should be trying if you like outside of comfort to go extra narrow or extra wide, at least on a barbell squat to try to manipulate um, like muscle lengths. I think you can play with those things on like like a feet forward close stance Smith machine squat or something like that. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, you're doing that and you don't have to worry about your dorsiflexion range because your feet are forward a little bit, right? You can shift back. The bar is only moving in one plane. So um, I really think that for free weight exercises, a lot of like the, you know, physique manipulations are, are generally a bad idea, like, like a guillotine press to try to get more stretch on the pecs. Not worth it from a shoulder perspective for most people. Um, super wide or super narrow stance for, for getting more, I don't know, what people would probably say is glutes or hamstrings, but it's probably actually more adductor and the wider stance versus more quads. Probably not worth it if it, you know, make, gives you hip, back, or knee discomfort, you know, from doing any of those. Mm -hmm. Cool. And then thoughts on assistance exercises for the squat? What do you like? Yeah, good question. Um, I think there is a lot of value for people who don't have control coming out of the hole, which happens in some power lifters. Um, benefiting from a bounce is great. Great and more, more power to you. You know, the stretch reflex, quote unquote, is uh, potentially a useful thing to be stronger. But if you have trouble with positioning or control, then doing things like pause squats or uh, squats from pins is a great way to have the opportunity to have more control in that position, which hopefully will then be as a motor learning tool for when you try to do the uh, squats out of the hole. So variations like that are something that can be useful in those circumstances. Um, I think for anyone who just gets beat up, like I was mentioning earlier in the bench press discussion from having a, a low bar position, you know, closer grip, you know, there's a reason why we wear wrist wraps on, on squats. It's not for performance, it's for wrist comfort. And sometimes you'll get pain in the wrists and down to the elbow and even into the shoulder uh, if you have a relatively extreme uh, bar position. So getting a break from that while still getting a decent, decent stimulus to the lower body, that can happen from belt squats. That mm, can happen nice. from, yeah, belt squats are nice because you're standing up. So there's, you know, it, it, you could argue there's probably more transfer than something like a leg press. Um, but I, I think leg press and hack squats, they're totally fine, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also useful to have some single leg squat variations in there mm. um, just to have that, that, that coordination and to feel comfortable in a, you know, just using one leg at a time. Um, and I think that can be really useful at times when you need to reduce the load. Um, so yeah, like those are typically the ones that I kind of use like generally, like let's find a good hypertrophy alternative. Let's find a closer variation that deals with your specific issue, maybe coming out of the hole too quickly or uncontrolled. Uh, and then let's, let's find something that we can use to reduce the load, but still train the, train the exercise. And then beyond that, it's like we have a specific issue that we're going to fix for you, kind of like I was mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are some 
great suggestions. I like the, um, yeah, oh, I like the idea of, mm. one other thing I will say, um, you probably need some isolated knee extensions in bodybuilder. So that, <laughs> I kind of had a very powerful thing take on this. So like rectus femoris, not getting trained, right? Most bodybuilders, not most, many bodybuilders, um, will have a squat variation and a, like a leg press variation and like a hamstring curl. And sometimes mm -hmm. like leg extensions aren't always necessarily included. Some people get knee pain from them. But there are many other variations where you can do isolated uh, knee extension. You can do sissy squats. You can do modified sissy squats. You can do reverse Nordics. Um, you can do uh, you know, standing leg extensions on a cable stack, one leg at a time. So there, there's a lot of ways to get a very, um, you know, like you can do the, the sissy squat machines and try and just basically maintain a constant, you know, back to hip angle. So basically, you're 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 requiring the extension to be the dominant aspect of the squat, so you don't have to do a leg extension necessarily. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that the quads, the squats may train the calves, you also need some isolation calf work. Indeed, that like, <laughs> you, you typically don't find a bodybuilder who doesn't do hamstring curls or calves because of squats, but you will sometimes find them just do like, um, you know, multi joint movements for the quads. Like oh, I do lunges, leg press, and squats. You know. And maybe yeah. I don't do knee extensions. So I think that's just some a more often gap in programming. For <laughs> I'm I'm retrospectively saying that I trained calves for those first few years when I only did, you know, the big three. <laughs> that's right. You did it all. Okay. Going on to the deadlift. This one's a little bit more of a controversial one, I think, in the hypertrophy community. What do you think mm. of the utility of the deadlift? Yeah, this one's probably a little more variable. So I understand the um, the reticence. And it's also different than the bench and the squat in so much as it begins with the concentric. So the lifting phase, it starts on the ground at the bottom, quote unquote, of the lift, and you just lock it out. Um, in a bench press or a squat, you lift it or you lift it out of the rack and then you go into the eccentric and then come out of the concentric. That's why it's a stretch shortening cycle phase. So what that means is that um, you don't necessarily have to perform the eccentric. You could just kind of drop it, keep your hands on it, let it loosely fall, and basically let gravity do that work for you. And that is essentially meaning that you're getting about half the volume. Uh, another consideration for very short lifters and flexible lifters is that the range of motion is not determined by how far you have to bring the bar down to your chest or how far you have to squat until the hip creases below the top of your knee. It's always gonna be half the distance of a standard uh, plate from the ground. So mm -hmm. that means that range of motion increases as you get taller, depending upon limb lengths, right? And an interesting uh, factoid is that I believe the heaviest deadlift pulled in the IPF is either in the 93 or the 105 weight class, or it's very similar in the men's. So what you see is that the deadlift, because presumably not only are people getting taller, but also in the supers, they're getting wider. So they're having to navigate their own body with trying to keep it close you won't see a 120 or a 120 plus necessarily pulling any or heavier than the 105s hmm. um, because they're now starting to get a disadvantage from the, the, the their, 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 them being a bigger human, right? Yeah. So that kind of goes to show that it is it has a unique kind of aspect like that while bench and squat scale in a very similar way with weight class. So I, I would say this is probably the easiest one to pick on out of the lifts as a, uh, a hypertrophy movement. But I think we still have to acknowledge the fact that for most people, 
you are in a pretty long muscle length position for the hamstrings and the glutes at the bottom. Um, and it is a trained a lot of muscles in the body at the same time. Um, it complements the squat because it is primarily hip extension dominant, not knee extension dominant. So it is a hamstring glute builder, unlike the squat, which doesn't really hit the hammies. So it is a, a hinging patterns are a very useful pattern for sure. Um, and there are easy modifications you can make to a deadlift uh, or do very, doing variations of the deadlift to where it becomes an excellent exercise. So uh, the RDL is probably the most famous one mm -hmm. uh, where you are simply starting at the top. So you have an eccentric. That's not an essential requirement of an RDL. Um, and you are emphasizing hip extension. Uh, so as you're going down, you're basically pushing your butt back as far as you can. You're not letting your knees track forward, although you are letting them unlock. In my opinion, the difference between a stiff leg deadlift and RDL is an RDL you would enable your knees to unlock, which gives you more range and allows you to do more hip extension um, uh, or move more into hip flexion to then do hip extension, I should say. But the key point here is that you're now controlling the eccentric, right? Um, and you're also putting the glutes and hamstrings in a greater stretch because you're not allowing your knees to track forward. So now you've got a pretty good movement, right? Mm -hmm. You've got an RDL or a good morning, which is basically the same movement, just with the bar on your back. Uh, another option is to simply just control the eccentrics, and then you've got a perfectly fine movement as well, again. Um, and uh, most powerlifters you will see will either be on one end of the extreme, a conventional or relatively wide sumo, because for the same reasons with, with bench press, you're, you're finding where you're most advantaged. In a sumo deadlift, you're trading your ability to produce force in an efficient way for reducing the range of motion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you think about what's the way to produce the most force into the ground, it's probably the same position you would try to jump your highest. And that's mm -hmm. essentially a really useful teaching tool for where your conventional foot position would be. If you wanted to dunk a basketball, you wouldn't like hop into a, a mid split and then try <laughs> to jump. You'd only get a few inches off the ground. But if you only have to get a few inches off the ground to do a sumo deadlift, then that trade off can be worth it. Um, so the sumo deadlift and the conventional probably do have different characteristics for hypertrophy long-term. Um, you're going to be at a, a longer muscle length for the adductors and the hamstrings, and, uh, there's more quad involvement in a sumo deadlift, and there's probably, you know, more, more glute and different hamstring involvement, uh, and, and lower and lumbar extension for, for the, for the conventional. I'm not super confident in making those statements. That's just kind of me guessing. Uh, there hasn't been really any super good analysis of the hypertrophy response to sumo versus conventional. Um, but actually what I like for bodybuilders is somewhere in between, you know, mm. just finding like a mid-stance sumo kind of a la like Ed Cohn is a really good position to where most bodybuilders can feel a comfortable uh, lower back position. And then uh, I find it's less technical than either a typical conventional or a wide stance sumo. Uh, and then just controlling the the, the eccentric. Um, this is something I noticed Jeff gravitated towards, Jeff Alberts. Mm -hmm. And back in the day when he used to more regularly deadlift, he would do like a mid-stance sumo. It's not the best for being the strongest, but who cares? Kind of the same lesson we learned from the front squat that it doesn't really matter when we look at the research in terms of how much you're lifting for necessarily how much force is being produced by each muscle. So uh, I would say an RDL or a mid-stance uh, conventional not a super close conventional or just outside of your hands sumo and then just making sure that you're performing the eccentric um those are both great variations for bodybuilders or just for tools to to 
ensure that you're actually growing those muscles as a power lifter. That's it. That's interesting. I kind of gravitate towards sort of a mid-stand sumo myself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I've definitely seen Jeff do those. The old school bodybuilders always talk about using deadlift for the back. What are your thoughts? I mean, yeah. So people did have the view that the deadlift is a really good back exercise. And I mean, it, it is, but it, it you need to be specific about what you mean for the back, right? You're not moving through much, like throughout the whole range of motion, you know, you're you're in mostly shoulder extended position, right? So there's not going to be a lengthened position on the lats at any point. Um, there is a lengthened, you know, position on the traps for sure, especially the upper traps. And you there, you will have to forcefully retract your scapula uh, and even elevate it to some degree if you want to get into like an IPF legal fully locked out position. Um, and there is some degree of keeping the bar close. You have to exert a shoulder extension moment, but it's it's in a shortened position for the lats, right? So it's probably not great for the lats, you know. Um, it's probably a pretty good trap builder. It's probably a pretty good scapular retractor, not as good as a row, obviously. Uh, and it's fantastic for your spinal extensors because you are absolutely extending your spine. So from with those caveats, it's a, yeah, it's a good back builder. Um, however, that is not what necessarily gets you good scoring in back shots by a, a panel of judges. Um, however, the glutes and the hamstrings are. So I think the deadlift is a very good movement or deadlift variations to be good at a rear, rear double bicep because it will ensure that some of the upper, you know, musculature, the mid back musculature, the lumbar, the glutes and the hamstrings have been developed. Um, but if we're talking about like a rear lat spread, you know, you're going to need to do some specific lat work, obviously. And uh, the deadlift is, is not a lat builder. So I think that that's probably the biggest gripe that it gets. It's not a good back builder, but I think it's more specific to say it's not a good lat builder. Um, and I would fully agree with that. When someone says it's a good or bad back builder, I'm I'm like, can we be more specific? You know, because yeah. that's that's too too much of a generalization either way. And I, I could or could not agree with you depending on what you think you're saying. Um, so yeah, the deadlift. I think one really important thing is like the deadlift, like the squat. These are lower body, arguably full body compound barbell movements that are typically done heavy. So they do generate a lot of fatigue um, mentally and physically. Mm -hmm. So I think you do have to think about, you know, what, when and how should you implement them to make sure that the juice is worth the squeeze. Because um, if you are kind of dogmatic about the necessity of including squats on a leg day and deadlifts on a back day, you know, it, it could it could just, you know, not necessarily be worth it. Um, and I have seen you know, program. I used to be like that, you know, early, early on in my career and probably before I even called a career early on as an athlete, you know? Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point to bring in that, you know, we won't necessarily deal so much with this on this episode, but that the role that fatigue plays where mm. when you're, if you're, you know, if you, especially when you get strong, if you're squatting or deadlifting a lot of weight, that puts a huge demand on the system and it's something you have to kind of trade off of as you become more advanced as a bodybuilder. Yep. Any assistance exercises for the deadlift that you like besides, you know, RDLs? And... Yeah, no, exactly to your point where you said about the demand on the body. I find myself with the deadlift, I do the least amount of specific variations of the deadlift mm -hmm. and more general assistance work because, you know, like a deficit deadlift or a low block pull 
Um, these are also very stressful movements that require high loads. And um, so a lot of the times I'll find myself doing like pull-throughs, um, belt squats, trying to mimic a little more of the deadlift position, um, and general hypertrophy work for the glutes, hamstrings, and lower back, like just back extensions, weighted back extensions, before I'm going to try to do like three different variations on deadlifts. When I do do variations on deadlifts, they tend to be pretty intentional for a motor learning role. Um, so, for example, I like to do mid-shin pause deadlifts for mm -hmm. lifters who tend to get out of position as they do the deadlift. So I think, especially with lifters who benefit from exerting a fair amount of force right off the ground, um, that is a, it's like a, it's a challenging way to learn how to maintain position. Kind of like the same thing, like I want to, I want to benefit from bouncing out of the hole on the squat, but I lose position. And it's like, okay, well, how do we get the best of both worlds? How do we maintain control while still being able to push out a lot of force when, when we need it? And for lifters who need to exert a lot of force in the deadlift off the ground, and they're not aware and they don't have enough time to correct that the bar is looping out and kicking out. And that can be a really great tool for now. It's like, okay, I have to feel, and I have the time because I'm pausing there for two seconds, the, the shin contact with the bar. And if you do enough of that, it starts to, you know, change that motor pattern. It gives you basically a, a more sensitive radar system to be aware of bar position relative to your shins. Then you go back to pulling heavy and you can hopefully get the best out of both worlds. It's something that I've seen has reliably fixed that issue. Uh, but that is not necessarily an issue for a lot of lifters. It's the issue for the bar, the lifters who have the issue. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the approach I take is specific uh, assistance work in the cases of specific issues and general hypertrophy work that for the, uh, the posterior chain because the deadlift is too fatiguing of a vehicle to do a lot of hypertrophy work with, in my opinion. The competition mm -hmm. deadlift. Yeah. And I have to ask, thoughts on rack pulls for hypertrophy not necessarily a deadlift accessory but yeah i mean we're essentially we're maintaining all of the issues with deadlifts right so it's not training certain muscle groups at a longer length uh you don't have necessarily a controlled eccentric and then we're going well let's take the primary muscles that it trains and not train them at a longer longer length either um so it i don't think rack pulls are very useful something similar that i do do that might look like a rack pull is for people who have grip issues, I just put them as high as they can. It's the highest rack pull possible to where they're still able to get it off the pins and then just hold the barbell for time to increase their grip strength because that's a very specific way to increase grip strength. Um, and it is less fatiguing than doing like a full range of motion deadlift. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that hard to do the, the very top one inch range of motion with something close to your max deadlift compared to actually doing a max deadlift. It puts a lot of, you know, axial loading on you, but it's a great way to uh, train the specific skill of strength in the deadlift and where you lose it. Most people lose their, like they get to, to the lockout and they're like, please, God, give me a down command because I've only got about two seconds of this. <laughs> and if we can extend that to four seconds, they'll probably get that down command, you know. So um, that that's that's one of the times it might look like one of my lifters is doing a rack pull, but they're not. They're doing grip work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Rack pulls put to rest. And right. another thing kind of, you know, looping around with all this discussion on, you know, different technique variations and biomechanics. When people are trying to choose, say, for example, like a stance width on a squat or, you know, grip width on a bench or something, if something makes you stronger, is that better for hypertrophy? Not necessarily. Yeah. I think that that is a, a general misconception. Yeah. Um, so 
the I think the front squat the example I mentioned earlier, you know, we've got data on that that would indicate that's not the case, even if you're lifting, you know, 100, 100 pounds more, you know. Um, likewise, the differences between deadlift variations are probably related to biomechanics primarily, not necessarily muscle forces and tension. Uh, the main things you want to look at is can you get as full range of motion as possible safely and pain free so that you can get, um, you know, different muscles with the target muscles into a more lengthened position. And then if that requires you to reduce load, not a big deal, uh, because if you're not in as quite of a biomechanically advantaged position, you're just going to get less out of the same muscle force rather than getting more out of it per se. Um, hence, a low bar squat allows you to lift more, but it doesn't force your quads to work any harder or anything like that or any less hard. Uh, they're working just as hard, but it's more it's a more efficient movement biomechanically, allowing you to move more weight. So that's really just a consideration of powerlifters. Sometimes it's a consideration of what variation allows me to reduce the total load. Because even if the muscle is producing the same amount of force for squat and deadlift variations, the spinal loading, for example, is the same. So it's actually quite nice sometimes to do something uh, like a safety bar squat or a front squat mm -hmm. um, or to do your uh, opposite deadlift. Like if you're a sumo deadlifter to pull conventional, just because you know you're you have a little bit less total load on your body, but you're still allowing your muscles to to work just as hard, and that is a very useful thing to do when you are experiencing joint pain or just this kind of feeling of general I'm a compressed person. Maybe I'm two inches shorter today because I've been lifting heavy for so long. Um, <laughs> I get that feeling sometimes. Maybe it's just because I'm turning 40. I don't know. But um, if I can find ways to reduce the load and still get a nice stimulus, that that's a useful thing. Um, BFR squats, you know, like, like I, mm -hmm. I'm still getting, you know, some way to stimulate my quads. I'm, you know, it's obviously not fun for different reasons, but if I really just need to not have 300 pounds plus on my back, I can chuck 185 on there, chuck the bands on. And I know at least from, you know, my hips down they're they're going to get a pretty comparable stimulus as long as I'm willing to be a little nauseous. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. You answered my follow-up question, which was basically, you know, if you establish that there may not be that much of a difference between some of these variations, then as a bodybuilder, it could also be a disadvantage if it's something's making you stronger and letting you say, you know, low bar squat more weight, but it trashes you because of your lower back involvement and all that. Absolutely. Um, many times it's kind of six to one half dozen of the other, and you do just have to assess like, do I have, you know, like spine discomfort, joint pain or discomfort? Is it taking me longer to recover? You know, mm -hmm. um, so for example, Bryce Lewis is a powerlifter I've worked with for more than a decade now. We made the switch from conventional to sumo deadlift, not because he was stronger sumo. In fact, his numbers are almost identical, um, but he took longer to recover from conventional. Mm. So when we switched to sumo, it just allowed him to do more deadlifting. Um, it, it improved his stimulus to fatigue ratio, as you might say. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that indirect, you know, benefit of mm -hmm. something that gives you a good session, but also allows you to create a good session that would give you a good stimulus. Well said. So, yeah, I think that was a great episode. I think we've set a lot of myths to rest and we'll have lots of uh, biomechanists in the comments, you know, giving us some opinions. But um, yeah, they're going to be mad because I didn't say uh 
Is it glenohumeral scapular rhythm or scapular <laughs> glenohumeral rhythm? I said in the wrong order. It's going to piss somebody off. So, yeah. And Eric is in the middle of prep. How's that been going, Eric? You know, he just posted a vlog. If anyone hasn't checked it out, I think that this is a pretty momentous time when you have someone of Eric's, you know, level of experience actually showing the process. I think it'll be especially useful for this this topic. Like, if you want to understand how this plays out, because I'm actually planning to do a powerlifting meet right now. It is early days. It's early March, and the powerlifting meet is supposed to be in June. And by then, I will have dropped like another like 13 pounds of body weight. So Crazy. I'm planning to compete in the uh, 83 kilo class, wow. which yeah, that's only like three kilos <laughs> over stage weight. So um, I am currently implementing like a minimum effective dose powerlifting approach bolted on to my, my bodybuilding approach. So if you wanna see how to combine those two um, and the choices I'm making with the type of variations I'm using to try to get the best of both worlds, but minimize the stress, then that's a, a, good, a good vlog to watch to get that example that it's primarily bodybuilding, but hey, I'm trying to get stronger. So it's uh, maybe a nice companion piece to this. And the other companion piece, if you're a power lifter who's thinking about some of these things and specificity and transfer, is to check out my recent article uh, that is uh, the cover story from the new mass issue, but it's free on strongerbyscience.com uh, on the uh, the complexities of specificity and how it's most often misunderstood. So both of those I think would be great to watch if you really want to um, understand more of the if you want to get really, really nerd out and see the research on this, then read that article. And if you are, you know, a physique athlete who wants to understand how it, you know, fits in with the big three, then check out my blog. Yeah, it's going to be good stuff. I feel like at this point, Eric, you just got to stop showing off, man. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Eric's like, oh, bodybuilding, doing a bodybuilding prep is too easy. Let's just uh, tack on a powerlifting meet as well. Well, we'll see, because there's a very strong possibility. Sometimes in sometime in May, I just pretend like I never plan to do it, and you never going <laughs> to talk about it again. And it probably means like I, I like strain my pec or hurt my back, or I'm just like weaker than I would be at, at 93 in terms of like my dots or whatever. So uh, yeah, like I can talk that shit now when I'm fat and happy, but we'll see when I've got lines in my ass if I still want to be squatting. Yeah, we'll see if proof of Eric being alive on the next episode. So. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Where can people find you, Eric? Yeah, best place to find me is 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. From there, you got links to the 3DMJ podcast. You got links to our blog. You got links to the vault where we have all our courses. I think for those who are enjoying these, these discussions that we've had, the Lifting Library is absolutely a course you'd be interested in. It's got over 40 videos. We've been making content for five years. If it's me talking specifically about how to implement these lifts and include them in your programming, um, so definitely check that out. Uh, if you're a Vault VIP member, you have access to not only that course, but all of our courses uh, at 3DMJ. So yeah, that, that's probably what I would shout out for this episode. Awesome. Yeah, go check that out. And thanks for being on the show, Eric. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.